0: Uh, The scripture reading today will be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 40. And when you find your place, would you please stand as we, out of great respect and adoration for the living word of God, uh, read his word and are moved and directed and, and changed by it. Begins with, in verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? Is he not to become uncircumcised? Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Is not to be circumcised? Circumcision is nothing, and yet uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of God is trustworthy. I think then that that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on, those who have wives should be as those they had none, be as those they had none, and those who weep as though they do, did not weep. And those who rejoice as those they did not rejoice. And those who buy as those they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is is concerned about the things of the Lord. That she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world how she may please her husband. This I say to your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, And he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be remarried to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your living word. We thank you that you've left it uh, to to move us, to direct us, to humble us, to help us to know more about uh, all of your attributes. God, we thank you, Father, that we can have your relationship through your word, through, through indwelling us with your Holy Spirit. And that now we want to worship you. Thank you for the freedom to, to do that. These doors are still open. We can still come in here without heavy persecution and, and speak much of you. And then when we leave, as we've ingested all those things you've taught us, Father, that we go out and we live what we've learned. We live the fact that you, you came, you made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you for that most amazing substitutionary death. And as we step out of this building, Father, we pray we would live that life. We would live the gospel. We would speak it. There would be no confusion about who we are. So thank you, God, for uh, this day of worship. Thank you for each person here. Thank you for guarding them, protecting them, shepherding them. Uh, We are amazed at your graces, Father, that are lavished upon your people. So we just uh, pray over the preaching this morning, Father. It will move our hearts that we will be grown. We will not be at the same level we were yesterday. You will continue to grow us in sanctification and move us closer to a walk with you, to be men and women that are pursuing holiness. your holy name, amen.
1: Well, this Sunday is the last Sunday for our family series, and uh, I'll just say this up front. Obviously, we didn't cover every single thing that you could talk about with regard to families. That's probably obvious to you, but uh, what we try, we've try we tried to do in this series is give principles, principles, uh, biblical principles of how to view the family, how to think about the family, how to live in light of that. So, uh, remember we started with the biblical story of the family, uh, walking from essentially Genesis through Revelation and talking about, yeah, from the beginning, God's plan was for the family to work together in unity and diversity to glorify God as image bearers. And then even in the fall, in the promise of uh, the one who, the serpent, uh, the, the male, the male offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, restore things back to identic conditions, uh, that that was coming through the family. Uh, And so through the Old Testament, you see the family as primary and looking for that one. Who is the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent? And then he steps onto the scene as Jesus of Nazareth in the world. He has an adoptive father and a virgin mother who bore him. And then we see a shift. We see a shift in the a- emphasis of the family because now it's not so much about the natural family anymore, but it is the family of faith. Those who entrust themselves to Jesus Christ as the one who has paid and who alone can pay for one's sins in their place and who can live the righteous life in their place. Uh, only those bound to him through faith are part of the family of faith. And so then the rest of the New Testament has that focus of the family of faith. It doesn't ignore the natural family, uh, far from it. It still holds it very high. But the reality is in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more natural family. There will be the family of faith and only the family of faith. Everyone will call themselves brother and sister in relation to what Christ has done for them in making them sons and daughters of God Most High. And so then we talked about, okay, yeah, but the, family, the, the natural family still held very high. So we talked about uh, what about the roles in a family, and what about parenting in a family? What does that look like? And so that's what we've talked about the last few weeks. But we don't want to leave this series with the idea that the Bible only cares about marriage and the natural family. Uh, that could be the mistake if we left the series where it's at. See the scriptures, and and you know if you're. I I know we have many singles in our church, and if you've been tracking with us for the series thus far, I'm so thankful uh, that you've not tuned out, that you've listened. uh, Some of you are preparing to have families, and we 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 uh, would pray for you in that regard. But sometimes you might get the feeling that oh well, scripture only cares about the family and marriage, and that's just not true. It's just not true. The scriptures have something to say about singleness, and in fact, they have a lot to say about singleness, as we will see today, and it's important for us to address it and talk about it. And this is really important because uh, singleness is on the rise in our culture, in the American culture. uh, There's an increasing number of um, singles. If you were to look at statistics over time, you would see that number, the sheer number of those who are not married, rising, and even the length of time being single. From say, uh, the time of reaching adulthood to the time of marriage, that length has increased. And that's due to multiple factors. I would submit to you that some of that is due to the devaluation of growing up. Our culture um, values and has valued for some time of remaining a child uh, for longer and longer and longer, right? And, And so there's this kind of extended time of, you know, you're on your own, you're enjoying life, that's good. Uh, And you don't need any commitments. There's a devaluation of growing up and taking responsibility. There's a devaluation of marriage that we can see in our culture, and there's also it it, it comes along right alongside the idea of expressive individualism that you are an individual and the individual is king. And so, if you are able to fulfill a life uh, as an individual and doing what you want with no commitments, then that's valued. So. We talk about building a career. We talk about enjoying your freedom as a single. Uh, don't don't get tied down with commitments. Don't get tied down with marriage. And of course, that even goes right alongside the sexualization of our culture, the sexualization of, a, um, of the self, where you are your sexuality. And so if you don't need to be tied down with a wife, you know, you live out whatever uh, that looks like for you. And so all of those contribute to uh, the, the state of singleness in our culture. You can say it this way. I was talking to someone else about it the last couple of days. Uh, our culture is fine with singles, has no problem with singles. Why? Because it goes right alongside the narrative of be devoted to yourself, live the life that you want, don't be committed to anyone else. And so our culture is fine with singleness. Now, that's from the side of the culture, but we could also think about singleness in the church. Singleness in the church. And this is kind of the other side of the pendulum. You see, as a church, we value the family highly, and rightly so. The scriptures value the family highly. And so sometimes, though, what happens is because the family is valued so highly, sometimes we can downplay or diminish singleness. Or you could think about it like this. Family is valued so highly in the church sometimes that singleness is viewed as a disease that needs to be cured by marriage. Well-meaning Christians can put pressure on singles to like, hey, uh, who, who are you dating? Who are you looking for? Because they value marriage so highly. It's not necessarily a bad motivation, but it's just they value marriage so highly. It's a good motivation gone awry where there's pressure put on singles. And even there's an, an investment in the relationship of singles from well-meaning married people to say, well, uh, let me help you get married, right? So it's viewed as this kind of, the marriage and family is viewed so highly that singleness is kind of viewed as a disease to be cured. So both if you are talking about singleness from the culture and you're talking about singleness from the church, uh, both of those go astray. And I would like to prove to uh, hope to prove to you this morning that both of those approaches are wrong. Uh, the, the culture as singleness is all about the self, that's wrong. And from the church, uh, well, if you're single, you need to get fixed by being married, that's wrong. So what does God have to say about singleness? And there's no better place to go than 1 Corinthians 7, which... Um, Steve read a great portion of this morning. And so we want to look at 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at verses 25 through 40. And just so you know, I I am preaching from the NASB this morning, and I bring that up because I think it does a better job of handling this passage and translating this passage than the ESV does, which is what I normally preach out of. But I want to give you a couple pieces of context um, as we look at 1 Corinthians 7. First, starting back in chapter 7, verse 1, you see Paul say this, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Now that's a catchphrase in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, you'll see it uh, multiple times, actually, through the later chapters of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is addressing a letter, or at least some concerns that have been relayed from the Corinthians to him, and he's, he's writing to them based on those concerns. So he starts first at the beginning of chapter 7 with, uh, now concerning the things about what you wrote, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And he's talking about sexual relations, and he, t- he puts the context of those in marriage. And he says, yeah, it's good. Have them in marriage. Do that. That's great. It, um, and that's where he starts. And then he goes on to talk about divorce and talk about mar- uh, marriage in those terms uh, as well. Uh, what do we do in this situation and that situation? So he talks about that in the first chunk of the chapter. And then the portion that Steve started reading from, in verse 17, all of a sudden you get this section that's kind of weird where he's like not talking about marriage anymore, but he's talking about like slaves and freed people. And um, what's that all about? Well, in 17 through 24, 17 and 24, Paul is relaying a principle that both applies to what he's already been saying earlier in the chapter, but also sets up for what he's going to say in verses 25 through 40. And that principle, you probably caught it as we read through it, is this. In whatever state, whatever condition the Lord called you, meaning called you to salvation, remain there, but not just remain there, remain there with God. And that little prepositional phrase, with God, is the key. That whatever situation, whatever circumstance in life that God puts you you don't have to try to change it, remain there with God. In other words, uh, you are connected with the Almighty God through Jesus Christ, and wherever you happen to be, it's not so much the question as much as it is, you remain there with God. Now, it's not an absolute statement, because notice what he says about slaves, right? If you're a slave, and you have the opportunity to free yourself Make full use of it. Do it. No problem. But wherever you end up, wherever you happen to be, the key is remain there with God. And really, that sets up for what Paul is going to say in verses 25 through 40, even with regards to this question of to marry or not to marry, or we could just say talking about singleness. Now, look at verse 25 just briefly just to set up for, I'll give you a little more context here. It starts with this, now concerning virgins. ESV um, translates this something like betrothed, I think. Um, The word is virgins. That's what the word is. And Paul is setting up another topic. He's especially, though not exclusively, addressing those who are getting married for the first time. And he's specifically addressing this issue of young girls getting married for the first time. Now, here's a social, there's a different social dynamic, as you might expect, with 2,000 years difference, and the location in the, uh, uh, the where Corinth is in the world. Um, there's some different customs there. So let me give you the basic sc- uh, scope of what it meant for a young girl to get married in the Greco-Roman world about 2,000 years ago. In, in Corinth. Uh, Usually marriages, especially first marriages, uh, your suitor, the guy, is in his 20s or 30s. Usually the guy is in his 20s or 30s. The girl, the virgin, the virgin daughter, is usually in her early to mid-teens. So we're talking 13, 14, 15, 16, something like that. Very young uh, at that time. But when you're talking about a couple getting married, it's not just the gal and it's not just the guy. The father of the daughter, the virgin daughter, is also involved. So you got three people involved in general. We're painting with a broad brushstroke, but it seems like this is the situation that Paul is addressing. you got three people involved, the guy, the gal, the daughter, and the father of that daughter in a marriage relationship. There would be an agreement, a wedding agreement, a wedding contract, that would be signed, and uh, even kind of drifting over in some cases into the point of arranged marriages. So you need to understand that, that that's some of the background that Paul is addressing before we walk through this section. But that's the situation it seems like that Paul is addressing. And so with all that said, and that background laid, here's the main idea for 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. It's this, remain unmarried and devoted to the Lord, if you can, because the form of this world is passing away. Remain unmarried and devoted to the Lord, if you can, because the form of this world is passing away. And really, as Paul works through this passage, he just addresses different groups. First, in verses 25 through 35, he's addressing those who would potentially marry, those who would potentially marry, so the guy and the gal, the guy and the gal, Uh, Second, in verses 36 through 38, and this is where the ESV and the NASB really diverge, and I think the NASB gets it right, but in verses 36 through 38, he's addressing fathers who would potentially give their daughters in marriage. And then finally, in verses 39 through 40, he's addressing widows who would potentially remarry. And really what you need to see as we walk through this passage is Paul's going to use the same principle and the same logic applied to those three different groups. He's going to use the same principles, the same logic applied to those groups, and it helps us define and think about singleness and marriage in our own context. So let's look back at verses 25 through 35, which is addressing those who would potentially marry. Addressing those who would potentially marry. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. But I give an opinion as those who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Now, let's pause there. This is one of those chapters that are kind of weird uh, if you have a high view of Scripture. Because you're like, wait a minute, the Scriptures are inspired, they're the words of God. And so when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. So what does it mean that Paul is not having a command of the Lord, but is giving an opinion? Wait a minute! Isn't that giving an opinion? isn't he saying that this isn't from the Lord? So how in the world is this in the scriptures? Well, here's the issue. He's not saying that he doesn't have revelation concerning this issue from the Lord. What he is saying is, I have no record from the historical Jesus when he walked this earth concerning the issue you guys brought up. Do you see how those are different? He's saying that. Uh, here's a topic that Jesus never addressed in his earthly ministry. He had never addressed the topic that you guys brought up in your letter to me, so I don't have anything at my disposal. And you're like, really? That's what he's talking about? Well, yeah, because early on in the chapter, he actually talks about, uh, remember how he says, now I am saying not the Lord, or here's the Lord saying not I? And when he says, here's what the Lord is saying, not I, he actually references a topic that Jesus did address, and it matches what the gospels say when Jesus addresses that topic. So he's not talking about, I'm giving opinion here, like the opinion of man. He's saying, I am giving you revelation, but this topic wasn't addressed by Jesus when he walked the earth. So that's important as we walk through this, because the words that you see in the NASB is rendered, uh, uh, I give an opinion, you could also render that word a judgment, which is kind of what an opinion is, right? But in this case, he's giving an, a, a judgment, As who? As one who by mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And I think what he's saying is, I'm an apostle. Christ has called me as an apostle to be trustworthy. Here's the apostolic judgment I am giving on this matter, because Jesus in his earthly ministry didn't address it. So as we read this, this is not opinion. This is revelation. It is inspired by God. Because even in verse 40, notice what Paul says, "I also have the Spirit of God." He's saying, "Yeah, this is inspired. This is from the Spirit. Uh, so what we are about to read is not opinion, it is revelation. And it is from the God. It's, uh, it is from God. It's just that Jesus didn't specifically address this topic in his earthly ministry. So what is an apostle? It's a representative of Jesus, so this is what Paul is going to give us. His apostolic judgment in this matter. Verse 26. I consider then, so he prefaces what he's going to say, all right, this is apostolic judgment, Jesus didn't address this topic, but I'm going to address it as an apostle. Verse 26, I consider then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And you start to see that language, remember that, that language of remain as he is. What's he talking about? Well, or, or you could say it like this, that, that it's good for a man to be thus." And then he defines, what does he mean by this? Verse 27, here's what he, Paul thinks is good. And it's not just his opinion. This is inspired, this is inspired revelation. This is what is good. Are you bound to a wife or to a woman, a woman and wife in Greek? It's the same word. Are you bound to a wife or to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a woman? do not seek a woman. And so that's what he is saying. He's saying, that's what's good. And what is he doing? He's applying the principle that was laid out in verses 17 through 24, saying what? Remain as you are. Whatever condition that God called you, remain as you are, but with God. And now he's applying that to the present circumstance of whether to get married or not. And he says, well, if you're already bound to a woman, whether in engagement or betrothal or already in marriage, I think he's probably more addressing the betrothal situation because that's, that's the circumstance he's addressing. If you're betrothed to someone, well, don't seek to get released from that. Just remain where you are with God in that circumstance. Are you released from a woman? You don't, you're not betrothed to anyone. You're not bound to anyone. Do not seek a woman, stay as you are with God. But he immediately qualifies that. He immediately qualifies what he says. Verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he's just saying, look, this isn't an issue of this isn't an issue of good versus sin. It's not the issue here. This is an issue of good versus better. This is an issue of good versus better. And he's giving inspired valuation judgments of here's what's good, here's what's better. It's not an issue of good versus sin. This is an issue of good versus better. And he's giving authoritative apostolic judgment on this. If You marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life and I am trying to spare you. And this kind of links back with a phrase that you might've caught you earlier on. He says in verse 26, I think that then that it is good in view of the present distress. You're like, what is the present distress? What's he talking about? Now, there's a couple opinions on this. One, there was a famine at this time in the kind of the broader Roman world, but even in specific to Corinth, there was kind of a famine that was going on. So some commentators say, oh, he's talking about the famine. He's talking about the famine. Like there's a famine, you can't support your family, so you shouldn't get married. That's one view. The other view is that He's talking about the present distress of this evil age, like the age that we live in, no matter whether you're in Corinth in uh, the early first century AD, or whether you're in America in the uh, 2000s, the present evil distress of this evil age. Paul characterizes the age we live in now as an evil age, a distressing age. And I think the second is more likely. Why do I think that? Because he never in what he says in the coming verses, he never addresses anything concrete like a famine would, but he does address He does address eschatology. He does address here's what's going on, eschatological realities that are happening in this age. And he's saying, he's saying as he gives this judgment, he's saying, look, In this evil age, there are distresses, there are problems. He talks about it also in verse 28. You will have trouble if you marry in this life. There are just things, and he's going to talk about it more as he goes through the passage, there are just things that become more difficult if you get married. Uh, and I say this as a married person and I agree with that right like I enjoy marriage I love it I wouldn't change anything that's not what we're saying but there's a reality in which there's difficulties and things that come up that are hard and that's what Paul is talking about and he, what he's doing in this he's saying yeah it's better if you can remain as you are it's better if you can remain single then, uh, you know, if you're bound and you you can't, uh, then stay there. That's fine. Remain there with God. But it's better if you don't have to get married because you're going to run into problems in this life. You're going to run into distresses. And I would spare you. And I would spare you. And then what Paul does in verses 29 through 31 is he essentially gives us, let me, uh, he, he, he pulls back the curtain and shows the logic that's operating behind the scenes that leads him to speaking about this. He gives a principle, and this is the key principle in the section that shows the, why he just said what he said, but also is going to govern the rest of the passage. So notice verse 29. We'll read 29 through 31. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. And you're like, what is he talking about? Well, let's keep reading. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. You're like, what in the world is that all about? Because is Paul just doing double speak? Like those who are weeping be as not those who aren't weeping? What's he talking about? Well, notice how he bookends all of that list of those different things. He starts with, well, the time has been shortened. And you're like, what is that? So that's one thing. But then at the end, what does he say? For the form of this world is passing away. And what does he mean by that? By the form of the world, he's talking about the structure of the world, the way the world operates. And he's not talking about negative things. He's just talking about the way God has designed this world and now it's fallen because of humanity, not because of God, but because of humanity, it's fallen. And the way it operates in general, the way it operates, the structure, that's what he means by form there, is passing away. It's dying, it's changing. And we already know that that's true from our study of the storyline of the family, right? Because what did God start with? He started with a structure in the world called marriage and family. And then Jesus comes and there's a shift in which uh, it's not so much about the natural family anymore, although, I mean, God holds it highly, the scriptures hold it highly, Paul holds it highly, Jesus holds it highly, no question about that. But there's a shift in which the family of faith, the church, takes priority. And then what's the culmination of that in the new heavens and the earth? The natural family's gone. It died. It passed away. There's only one family in the long run. It's the family of faith. And that's one particular structure of all the structures in the world that are passing away. And so I think that's what Paul means when he talks about the time has been shortened. He does not say the time is short, does he? He says the time has been shortened. What's he mean? He's meaning since Jesus has come and what has happened with Jesus the time has been shortened. We've only got one one section of an age, one type of time, one season, maybe that's the way to best say it, one season left before Jesus comes. And all the structures of this world are going to pass away. That's why he says, let's go back through the list now that he says, Okay, the time has been shortened. The time of the form of this world has been shortened. That's how I'd render that. The time of the, the form of this world has been shortened. So what do you do? So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you abandon your wife as a Christian? All right, I'm a Christian. Marriage doesn't matter. No, obviously not. The scriptures don't say that. So what is he talking about? he's talking about living in light of the end. He's talking about living in light of the end. Look at some of the other ones of these. Those who weep as those they did not weep. Now, something happens in the structures of this world, the structures of this age, the time of this life, being in this fallen world, something happens that causes you to weep. The Bible never says don't weep in the sense of like, oh, just slap a smile on your face and say it's hunky-dory because you know, um, it's all going to be fine in the end. No, that's not how the Bible operates. But it does say, yeah, if something really sorrowful happens to you and this, because you live in a fallen world, weep, lament over that, but always keep the end in view. In other words, don't sink all of your hopes in this present evil age because it's going to pass away. Always look to what is happening in the future and that, It doesn't say stop weeping, it just changes your weeping. You weep as those who, what, in the long run won't weep. New heavens and the er new earth will be perfect joy and bliss. That doesn't cancel out your weeping now, it just changes it. It just changes it, it tempers it, it tempers it. Same thing with those who rejoice. Maybe something great happens to you in this present age, even though in a fallen world. There are good things that happen by God's grace, by God's common grace, even in a fallen world. And maybe you rejoice over that thing that happens in the form of the world as it currently is. But you should do that in such a way that you don't rejoice. What does he mean by that? He's saying, don't sink all your joy and your hopes in the form of this world that's passing away. The end changes your view even of good things that happen here and now. He goes on. Those who buy as though they did not possess. So I'm going to buy some stuff in this world. I'm going to, you know, I bought a house just recently. I love my house. I enjoy my house, but I realize I'm not going to have it. It's not really mine. I mean, I'm going to, the the new heavens and new earth are going to come. I'm not going to have that house anymore. I don't really possess that house in the long run. It changes my view of the present form of the, this world. In verse 31 and those who use the world, so this is pretty broad. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. Why in the world would you make full use of something that's dying? And that's Paul's point. So even those who are married, that's going back to the first one in his list, even those of us who have wives should be as though they had none. Meaning what? I'm not sinking all my hopes in my marriage. I'm not sinking all my hopes in a good marriage. Now, Scripture obviously has an ideal. It calls Christians to pursue that, but I'm definitely not sinking my hopes in that marriage because I know my marriage is going to go away because of the new heavens and the new earth that is coming. I'm living in light of the end. That's the logic that leads Paul to say already what he said. It's better to remain as you are, even single if you can, because the form of the world is passing away. And notice how he returns to that. How did he end in verse 28? He said, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin married, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. Then he gives his principle in verses 29 through 31. And then what does he do in verse 32? But I want you to be free from concern. He comes back and he says, hey, look, if you're married, you're going to have difficulty. You're going to have concerns and cares of this life. And then he unfolds that a little bit more. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And so he's talking to the man here. It's very clear in the gender in the Greek that he's talking to the man. So the unmarried man, uh, unmarried man uh, is concerned if he's Unmarried, he's as a Christian, he ought to be concerned about the things of the Lord. And what does that look like to be concerned about the things of the Lord? It means that if you're unmarried, you ask this as a man, you ask this question, How may I please the Lord? That's the dominant focus, the pure focus of your life. So, this is very different from the way our culture views singleness, right? Because our culture says, Hey, you're single as a man. That's great. Ask this question. How might I please me? It's a self-centered focus versus what is Paul saying? If you're single, you, if you're a Christian, you ask this question. How might I please the Lord? Now, isn't that true of every Christian? Isn't that true of every Christian that we ask the question, how might I please the Lord? Well, absolutely. But what Paul is trying to highlight here is just the sheer reality that if you get married, there are concerns that you have. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 33, but one who is married, he's still addressing the guy here, and he says, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. Well, what did he just talk about? The form of the world passing away. Not in terms of like just negative, like that's not what Paul's addressing when he talks about the form of the world. He's not just talking about the negative aspects of the world. He's just saying it's passing away, even the good things. But what is he saying in verse 33? The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, and what question is he asking? How might he please his wife? And that's true. As a married man, I want to please the Lord. That is my overarching umbrella concern. I want to please the Lord. But the Lord then calls me as a married man to ask a subsequent question, which is how might I please my wife? That is a good thing. Husbands, you ought to want to please your wife. If you don't want to please your wife, then you're not pleasing the Lord because the Lord would have you please your wife in legitimate ways. To care for her is the idea. To care for her in legitimate ways. Remember Ephesians 5, to nourish her, uh, to, to love her as Christ loved the church. That's what Christ would have you do. So Paul's not saying that's a bad question for him to ask, how he might please a wife. It's just the reality. It's just the reality. You get married, you have concerns in this world And you have concerns about things that are ultimately going to pass away. My marriage is going to pass away. It's going to go away. It doesn't mean I don't ask that question, how I please my wife. It's still there. And by doing so, I am pleasing the Lord. But Paul's point is, you're investing in something. You're investing in a form of this world that is ultimately passing away. And he addresses not only the man, but he addresses... Notice the principle that his conclusion, Paul's conclusion in verse 34 still talking to the guy, and his interests are divided. Not divided in a sinful way, just divided in a realistic way. And Paul's saying, hey, I'd rather you didn't have that. And he addresses the woman, too. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin. Now, he's got two categories there. The virgin is the one who's never been married. The unmarried woman he's talking about is probably someone who has been married and either divorced or um, had her husband pass away as as a widow, The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. But the one who is married, the woman who is married, is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. It's just the way things are. And notice what he says in all of this, right? Now, it's very clear... Paul speaking as an apostle, it's very clear what his preference is. His preference is stay unmarried if you can. That's what his preference is, and it's an inspired preference. It's not good versus evil, it's good versus better. It's good versus better. But again, look what he says in verse 35 to qualify it. This I say, all I'm saying here, guys, in 1 Corinthians, this I say for your own benefit— not to put a restraint upon you. And the word for restraint, there was literally a noose. I'm not trying to put a noose upon you as I tell you these things, but to do what? To promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So what is he saying? He's saying, look guys, you shouldn't read what I'm telling you here and say, well, then there's no other option. I just got to remain unmarried. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm not doing that to put a noose around you. I'm just saying that if you remain unmarried, then you get the opportunity to be totally devoted concerning the things of the Lord. I'm promoting for you who are unmarried to do what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's what he's saying, and that's his preference. If you can remain unmarried do it. Because you're not going to be distracted with the things of this world that are passing away. It's not good versus evil. It's good versus better. And there's a context to this. Uh, It it totally squares with what Paul says earlier on in the chapter. Turn back just briefly to verses 7 through 9. So uh, first few verses in the chapter, Paul says, Look, um, uh, you guys are saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman in terms of not to have sexual relations. And they were saying, well, don't even do it in, t- in, in marriage. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Do it in marriage. And he ends this section and he says this in verse seven Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And what is he talking about? He's talking about being single. He's saying, I wish that you were all as myself am. However, right, he immediately qualifies it again. Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And he's saying, look, some of you get the gift from God to be single like me, and some of you get the gift of God to be married. Either way, it's a gift. verse 8, but I say to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am, remain where you are with God, right? That's his principle. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. How do you know whether you should get married or not? Well, if you have a desire to be married, and um, even in terms of a sexual drive in that sense, well, then you probably don't need, uh, you probably need to get married, you see how this works though, but what is Paul saying? He's saying, here's the preference. If you can remain unmarried and devoted totally to the Lord, not to yourself, which is what our natural flesh would do. Yeah, I'll remain unmarried for myself, but to do what? To be undistracted and devoted to the Lord with your whole life, then that's better. Then that's better. And essentially the logic he just worked through in verses 25 through 35, he then applies to the remaining categories. So we're going to switch gears and see those last two categories. Let's look at, he's addressed the man and the woman. Remember the man and the woman who are getting married. He's addressed those, but remember there's a third party. There's the father, and that's who he addresses. That's who he addresses in verses 36 through 38 let me read thir- verses 36 to 38 again in the, the New American Standard, and then I'm going to read them in the ESV. I want to point this out just so we're all on the same page with this. Verse 36, but if a man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and it, if she, it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. That's the NASB. English Standard Version reads this way. And most other translations, most other modern translations read this way as well. Verse 36, ESV. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, if and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him then marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and is determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So notice how the ESV renders it. It renders it, hey, this is about the man and the woman again. This is about the man and the woman again the NASB says, uh, okay, we're done talking about the man and the woman. We're talking about the father in this whole scenario. And I think the father view is a better view. Why is that? I've got multiple reasons. First, the cultural context. In that culture, in that time, you have a young teenage daughter, which was the normal age for daughters getting married. You would have not only the daughter, but the, you know, the suitor and then the father. That's normal, okay? Second, uh, the, you've got phrases in this section that refer to his virgin. Now, that's an odd, that's an odd thing to say if you're only betrothed to that woman uh, and not actually like, the, you don't possess her yet, you're not married, so why would you use that language? Uh, most strongly, in verse 38, the verb that is used there is gives his own daughter in marriage. The verb is give in marriage, not marry. Uh, the verb is normally used of someone like a father giving a daughter in marriage. It's not normally used. In fact, this would probably be the only place it would be used if it was to actually just mean the straight up Mary, which is how ESV renders it. It's usually used in this context, as I think it is, of a father giving a daughter in marriage. And fourth, this interpretation of a father giving a virgin daughter in marriage has been Uh, was held by many of the early uh, Christian interpreters who spoke Greek. So probably it's right. I think it's best in view of all of those things that he's talking to fathers giving their virgin daughters away. But notice this. It's not so much about who he's addressing, but notice the logic. He applies the exact same logic that he just applied talking to the man and the woman. Now he applies it to the father who has something to say in this whole scenario verse 36, but if any man, referring to the father, thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's suppose the dad buys into this that's like, hey, it might be good for my virgin daughter to remain as a Christian devoted to the Lord. Um, So I'm going to keep her. I'm going to keep her as she is. But the problem is, in that culture, in that time, that an unmarried uh, woman who would otherwise be able to be married to be, remain unmarried carried a stigma. And so that's what it means for a father to act unbecomingly. He's worried about, like, if I do this, I'm going to kind of shame her in the culture. I'm going to act unbecomingly towards her. It's going to be shameful for her. What is it? That's what the if is all about. If she's past her youth, and that's the idea of this word, it's a hard word to translate, but it usually seems to mean something like you've reached puberty. You've passed your youth. You've reached puberty, and it must be so. Let him, the father, do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let, and then the, the NASB says her, but it's better translated them. Let them marry, meaning the guy and the gal, go ahead and let them marry you're not going to sin by doing it. It's the exact same logic, because now it's not only the guy and the gal, but it's the father saying, okay, if I'm letting her marry this guy, it's not a problem, even though, as Paul expresses, if she could remain unmarried, that would be better for her undistracted devotion to the Lord. And then he gives the contrast. He gives the other side. Verse 37, but he, referring to the father who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will. Meaning what? I haven't promised her to anyone. Usually there's some sort of marital agreement even before the marriage that that they would be promised to each other. And he says, all right, but maybe you're in a situation where you don't have to do that. You're not worried about that. He who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. What's the result? Verse 38. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do even better. And there again, you see Paul's principle. This isn't a good versus evil. This is a good versus better issue. And then he, so he's addressed the father. Now who does he address in verse 39 through 40? He addresses widows who would potentially remarry. So remember how this started. It started with the topic the Corinthians asking about virgins, and he applies the principles to that scenario, and then he extends the same principle to others who would be to be unmarried. Verse thirty-nine. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, literally, if her husband falls asleep, so he dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And there you see it, that the covenant of marriage exists for as long as you both shall live. And when one of you dies, the covenant dissolves. It's only for this time and for this life. It's a form of this world that is passing away. One of the spouses dies. The other spouse is free to marry, except with this caveat, only in the Lord. Christians who are unmarried can only marry Christians ought only to marry Christians. And you see that in this verse. Now, Paul had addressed earlier, well, what if you're already in a marriage with an unbeliever? He addressed that issue earlier in the chapter, but that's not what he's talking about here. So he says, yeah, you're free to marry who you want in in the Lord, but then he gives the other side using the same principle, verse 40, but in my opinion, judgment, I would render it judgment because he's giving an apostolic judgment, but in my judgment, She is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. And Paul's being a little tongue-in-cheek there at the end, because some of this whole issue, it seems like some of the Corinthians were kind of saying, well, if you want to be super spiritual, then this is what you do. You don't do this, and you do that, right? And he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek and saying, well, this is my apostolic judgment, and I think I have the Spirit of God, too. That's what he's doing there. He's being understated to say, yeah, what I just gave you was an apostolic judgment inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, what's it all mean? It's what our big idea says at the beginning. If Paul was here and he was to talk to you all today, I think he would say this remain unmarried and devoted to the Lord if you can, because the form of this world is passing away. Even Jesus, we we look back earlier in the chapter, we he kind of said, you know, each one has his own gift from God. So it's not that everyone remains single, but each one has their own gift. It's a good versus better issue. Even Jesus in Matthew 19 said, if you're able to remain single for the the kingdom of God, then do it. If you're able to receive this, receive it, Matthew 19. So how do we think about that now, right? So how do we apply what Paul is talking about? Let's run through a few things. First, we can say this both marriage and singleness are gifts from God, good gifts. In either state where God puts you, you are to, to use this principle from verses 17 through 24, remain there with God. So whether you're married, remain there with God. Whether you're unmarried, remain there with God. The issue is your devotion to the Lord in either of those cases. Your marriage is for God and your singleness is for God. Marriage is not about you. Singleness is not about you. As a Christian, marriage is for the Lord, and singleness is for the Lord. There's a wrong—and if you understand that, then you understand that there's a wrong way to be single. There's a wrong way to be single. Namely, I'm going to stay unmarried to be devoted to myself rather than to Christ. If you are a Christian and you are single, then God has given you the gift now— to be devoted to him. He didn't give you singleness to fritter away time and money and to squander time and opportunity. He gave you singleness to be devoted to the... He didn't give you singleness to be devoted to the things of this world, the form of which is passing away. You fritter away your time and money on the things of this world, well, it's it's even worse than if you would have gotten married, right? In that sense that you're totally distracted. You're distracted with the things of this world. The world is passing away. The gift of singleness is not for yourself, it's for the Lord, just as marriage is a gift for the Lord. So live life, whether married or single. This is the second thing we could draw from this. Live life, whether married or single, in view of what? Both, whether camp, what other category, live in view that the form of the world is passing away. The world is dying. So whether you're married or not, live in light of that reality. Live in light of the reality that the form of the world is passing away. This is where eschatology is really practical. So we say, oh, eschatology is not practical, blah, blah, blah. It's intensely practical. All the New Testament is written in light of the fact that Christ is coming again, and that should impact even things like marriage and singleness. That's as nitty-gritty as it gets. The form of the world is passing away, either whether married or single, live in view of that reality. Here's a way to say it in the long run, in the new heavens and the new earth, everyone is single. Everyone is single in relation to one another as part of the bride of Christ. Here's a misconception that we sometimes have. We talk about how Christ is going to marry his bride, and sometimes we say, oh great, I'm bound to Christ like a bride to a husband. Not to you, to the corporate reality of the whole church. So if you think about the corporate reality of the whole church everyone in relation to each other is single and then that corporate reality is bound to christ and that's the marriage so all will be single as part of the bride of christ in the end that's the final state christ everyone will be totally devoted to christ in the long run all will be single in that sense marriage and family is not ultimate but devotion to christ is And so what do we say? As uh, the big idea this morning says it, third thing we can kind of take away is this. If you can remain single and leverage it for devotion to Christ and the proclamation of the gospel, do it. If you're single here this morning and you are able to remain single, not for yourself, but for total devotion to Christ and leveraging it for the gospel, do it. I think that's what Paul would say. I think that's what Christ would say if he was here. Some of you won't do it, and it's fine. But that's what it says. It's not good versus bad. It's not good versus evil. It's good versus better. Paul and Jesus have a very high view of singleness. You have an opportunity as a single for undistracted service to Christ. Marriage does come with legitimate, not sinful, legitimate, distracting cares. And you're like, why in the world? What are you talking about? Why in the world would I want to remain single? Isn't being married the thing? No, the gospel is the thing. The reality that the God-man, that God the Son became man, lived a complete and full, the fullest human life he could live as a single, and then died for his people in their behalf for their sins, and live the righteous life that they could not live in their behalf to ransom a people to himself so that they could be brothers and sisters to him in the new heavens and the new earth and all eternity. That's why you would remain single, because you would be able to serve fully devoted that Christ even now, to leverage singleness in a way that married people cannot. You can just drop things at a, um, uh, at a call or at the drop of a hat and go off for, not for yourself, but For Christ. So if you can remain single and leverage it for devotion to Christ, not yourself, for the proclamation of the gospel, do it. Along with that, I would say this, and this is kind of the fourth reality we could take away. If you are single, then you have the gift of singleness for the time being. Sometimes we think about singleness as like, remember how Paul said it? Like one has one gift and one has another. Sometimes we think of that, oh, I've got to discern, do I have this gift, or do I have that gift? I think Paul would say this, look, if you're single, you have the gift of singleness. For now. For now. Not saying that things can't change. I don't think Paul would say that, that, okay, if you're single now, that can never change. Uh, He's just saying that if you have the the gift of singleness, uh, if you're single, then you have the gift of singleness for the time being. So if you're single, pursue increasing devotion to Christ. Use your gift of singleness for the proclamation of the gospel while you're single. And here's the other thing. Being single doesn't mean being alone. I think that's what a lot of singles struggle with, and I remember being a single and struggling with that, the fear of being alone. Well, being single doesn't mean being by yourself because what? The family of faith. The family of faith, of devoting yourself to Christ means devoting yourself to the family of faith in the church, getting close to them, not isolating, investing in others, using your life as a platform uh, to love others. And don't just get around others who are like you. That's not how the family of faith works. It's easy for singles to hang around other singles, but that's not what Christ wants. Christ wants you to be integrating with all sorts of the family of faith and you're like, well, yeah, but I'm single, but I want to be married. Well, you're still called to those things of devotion to Christ and serving others while you're single, but that doesn't mean you can't legitimately pursue marriage. So maybe you're like, yeah, I'm single, I want to be married. Well, for the time being, use your singleness for devotion to Christ, use it to serve others, but then legitimately use the avenues to pursue marriage and get on it. It's bad to just stay in a safe state where it's like, well, I want to be married, but I kind of want to stay single for a long time. That's not good to prolong that, that period. And there's multiple dynamics there, and I get that. But if you're going to be married and you want to be married, then use your singleness for the time being in the way that God would have you. And if you want to pursue marriage while that's happening, do it. Here's the other aspect of it, though. If you're single and aren't looking for marriage, it's like, nah, I'm single. I'm not looking for marriage. But then sometimes you can get into a bad mindset where it's like, well, maybe some possible mate crosses your path and you just say, well, I'm single and I'm satisfied. I don't even need to consider that person. I would call you actually consider that person because you have the gift of singleness for as long as you have it. That doesn't mean you can't shift or that God might not shift you from the gift of singleness to the gift of marriage at some future point. So you're like, "Eh, I'm fine being single. I'm fine being devoted to the Lord. But then some possible mate crosses your path. Don't dismiss him or her out of hand. And here's the point. In whatever condition you're in, in whatever situation you are, be content. Married, single, single seeking for marriage, single not seeking for marriage, whatever situation you are, be content because God is a good father and he is sufficient. Remain, Paul would tell you, as he told the Corinthians, remain in your condition, a little prepositional phrase, with god god should color whatever condition you're in finally for the married people in the church let's not assume and i've done this i'm guilty of this let's not assume that all single people should be married and that it's a travesty when they're not We fall into that so easily because we enjoy being married to a good spouse and then we think, well, everyone needs to be like us and we need to fix everyone so that they're like us. Married people, let's not assume that all single people should be married and that it's a travesty when they're not. Let's come alongside that person, be a true friend, be a true brother and sister in Christ and see what God is doing in their life. Maybe it's marriage, maybe it's not. Maybe it's a life totally devoted to the Lord and let's support them and be a good brother and sister to them in either case. Remain unmarried and devoted to the Lord if you can, because the form of this world is passing away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you how intensely practical and surprising your word is, oh Lord God. We get into a mindset of we think we know, we think we know what you would have. We think we know what's good. And then you come and say, well, here's what's good and it doesn't match our preconceived notions. And Lord, we we love that, and, and yet it's hard at the same time. I just pray for all in this room. Lord, I pray for our singles in this room right now, that you would give them great discernment and wisdom. Lord, I pray most of all that none of them would use their lives for themselves. Lord, that they Either way, whether you choose for them to be married or not, that they would be devoted to you and loving you because of what you have done in the gospel. That's all of us, oh Lord God. Even those of us who are married, Lord, you have saved us. And yes, though we are distracted with some cares of this life, necessarily, we want to be devoted to you because we know the form of this world is passing away. We know you will come again, Lord Jesus. We know that you will establish your kingdom in the new heavens and new earth where we will all be single as part of the communal bride of Christ connected with you. Lord, we love you. Help us to live in this world not as if it's going to last forever, to not be distracted, to not put our hopes here and now, but to put our hopes in the future because of what you have done as the perfect single who redeemed a people to yourself. We praise you and we thank you. Lord, help us to walk in light of these realities. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.